Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to the Federal Society's virtual event. This afternoon, May 25th, 2022, we discuss courthouse steps, Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions or opinions are, are those of our expert on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an, ex, an expert in Kurt Levy, whom I will introduce very briefly. Kurt Levy is the president of the Committee for Justice. After graduating Harvard Law School with honors and clerking for the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Sixth, for the Sixth Circuit, Mr. Levy served as director of, of legal and public affairs at the Center for Individual Rights, CIR. After CIR, Mr. Levy headed, headed the Title IX Policy Group at the U.S. Department of Education. Before attending law school, Mr. Levy earned an MS and BA in computer science from Brown University and worked in the field of artificial intelligence. He invented a new type of AI technology for which he wrote a successful patent application. After our speaker gives their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Kurt, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Cummings is a case that was decided a, a few weeks ago by the Supreme Court. It involved the availability of emotional damages for discrimination on the basis of, of disability. And, and more generally, it implicates the scope of, of recoverable damages for private actions under spending clause statutes. Um, let, me, let me start with some background. Um, the petitioner, uh, Jane Cummings, was deaf and legally blind, and the respondent, uh, Premier uh, Rehabilitation, declined her request for a sign language interpreter um, at her physical therapy sessions. Uh, she sued in federal court claiming disability discrimination in violation of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the Affordable Care Act. Um, Premier was, was covered by the relevant provisions um, because they're a recipient of federal funds, namely Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and both laws um, prohibit recipients of federal funds from discriminating based on disability, much like uh, Title VI does, does for, uh, for racial discrimination. Um, both um, of those statutes have implied rights of action under which uh, remedies are, are judge created. Um, now Cummings ultimately just went to another provider. So the only alleged injuries were emotional in nature and the trial court um, concluded that emotional damages are not recoverable under either statute. So trial court dismissed the complaint and the Fifth Circuit affirmed. Um, uh, the Supreme Court granted cert and split uh, six three along usual uh, ideological lines. And um, lest you think this is a uh, rather dry or even boring legal issue, let me read you the view of uh, an ACLU attorney on the left uh, commenting on the decision. Um, uh, she says, undergirding the court's decision making here is a desire to ensure that marginalized people never profit 
too much from their suffering. A frequent concern of the conservative majority is the notion that common folk who seek to vindicate their rights are abusing the legal system, trying to get one over in pursuit of a fortuitous windfall. To these justices, people who experience discrimination are not victims who deserve protection. They are greedy vultures whose hunger must be contained. And that's from Yvette uh, Borja. And on the right, um, Sarah Parshall Perry, a conservative attorney who I'm sure some uh, uh, in the audience are familiar with, says the attachment of liability for strictly dignitary injuries could let loose a torrent of fr frivolous claims for alleged violations of federal anti-discrimination law, likely extending beyond disability law. For example, there is no shortage of precedent on the pretextual use of anti-discrimination law by plaintiffs claiming to have suffered emotional distress at the hands of business owners who hold traditional but unfashionable religious beliefs. So, so that's what's at stake. Um, and that's why amicus briefs uh, in support of Cummings were filed by the ACLU, um, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, a variety of disability rights organizations, uh, the Biden Justice Department. And then on the other side um, were briefs from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, um, 10 um, red states headed by Texas, uh, Washington uh, Legal Foundation, uh, Public uh, Interest Litigation Group. Um, maybe a bit more surprising on that side were groups like the National League of Cities and the US Conference of Mayors. Um, but you know they are recipients of federal funds and thus could be affected um, negatively by this decision. Um, you know, the decision, again, flows from the fact that both statutes were enacted under the spending clause um, and under Supreme Court precedent, uh, mainly uh, Pennhurst 40 years ago, legislation under the spending clause is thought of as a, a contract. In return for federal funds, the recipients agree to comply with federally imposed conditions. Um, and precedent says that remedies of particular types are available only if funding recipients are on notice that taking federal funds expose them to liability of, of, of that type. And again, uh, all we have to go with is precedent since this is an implied right of action. Um, and you know, recipients are assumed on notice regarding damages that are um, traditionally available in breach of contract suits. Um, so that certainly everyone agrees that includes compensatory damages and injunctions. Um, so pretty much all I've said up to this point, the majority in dissent agree. Um, where they differ is, well, let me start with uh, the uh, majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. Um, he says that there is no notice uh, because traditional breach of contract damages don't include emotional injuries. Um, Cummings, of course, disagreed, um, pointing out that emotional damages are available for breach under certain conditions. But the majority responds that um, by pointing to the traditionally available, generally available language that we see in precedent. Um, also, they point to the uh, restatement of contracts, which says 
recovery for emotional disturbances will be excluded unless the breach is of such a kind that serious emotional disturbance was a particularly likely result. Um, but even that exception is, is hardly a clear majority rule, um, Roberts points out. Um, and, you know, I guess sort of the last point the Roberts makes is, is, look, this is an implied right of action. It's made up. Don't push it. You know, that's obviously my uh, my wording. But, uh, you know, so anyway, accordingly, emotional damages are not available under either statute, uh, the ACA or the Rehabilitation Act. Um, and that follows the logic of a case about 20 years ago. Uh, Barnes v. Gorman, which reached the same conclusion for punitive damages under disability statutes, even though punitive damages were available under some special circumstances, but they're not generally available for breach of contract. Um, and that pretty much summarizes the majority opinion. Um, there was a brief concurrence by Kavanaugh that was joined by Gorsuch. Um, in which they say that the contract law analogy is, is really an imperfect way to determine remedies for an implied cause of action. Um, they would look to a larger context, I guess you would say, um, and they note that under uh, separation of powers, it's Congress, not the courts, that should create causes of action, um, extend you know, implied causes of action and and expand available remedies. And um, clearly Congress did not do that here. Um, and then the dissent was by Justice Breyer, uh, joined by Kagan and Sotomayor. And Breyer argues for a finer grained uh, approach. I mean, he again cites that restatement that I read, um, you know, that, that admits that there are, um, um, you know, there are exceptions and says, um, you know, these statutes prohibit invidious discrimination, which is particularly likely to cause serious emotional distress. And thus the uh, recipient is on notice um, and emotional damages should be available. And um, more generally, he argues that um, remedies for breach of contract are intended to make the uh, the plaintiff whole. Um, you know, that's why we don't include um, punitive damages, um, because those, you know, go beyond making um, making the plaintiff whole. Um, and that's why we don't have emotional damages for, um, you know, for breach that that mostly involves pecuniary harm. Um, but uh, Breyer says, um, you know, under the exception, um, there are emotional damages for non-pecuniary harm, um, such as some forms of discrimination. And, you know, he cites cases involving contracts for marriage, um, handling of a of a dead body, delivery of, of sensitive telegram messages. But to me, that drives home the point, you know, that those are pretty narrow exceptions and that emotional damages are not generally available. Uh, Breyer says it is difficult to believe that prospective funding recipients would be unaware that intentional discrimination based on race, sex, age, or disability is particularly likely to cause emotional suffering. Um, so again, he's arguing as a you know practical matter that, that they are on notice. Um, <clears throat> he also says, again, look, since we're making this up, sensible. A sensible remedial scheme should be the goal. And he points out that this is not sensible because 
non-spending clause statutes do permit emotional damages. Um, so Breyer says the court's decision allows victims of discrimination to recover damages only if they can prove that they have suffered economic harm, even though the primary harm inflicted by discrimination is rarely economic. I don't know if I would agree that it's rarely economic, but fair enough, it's it's not always uh, economic. Um, and, um, you know, Breyer also worries that the court has, because the court has treated other spending clause statutes, uh, Title VI, Title IX, as, as coextensive um, regarding remedies, at least, that, um, you know, this decision will have, uh, you know, a bad impact on remedies for race, sex, age discrimination. And I guess in one way or another, if you think about the comments that, you uh, uh, people on both sides made after the decision. Uh, you know, there is general agreement that it will uh, that it will spill over. Um, that uh, was a short opinion, so I think that that about um, summarizes it. Well, thank you so much, Curtin. I would like to point our audience to at the bottom of their screen, there's a Q&A section. You're more than welcome to put any questions you might have for Curtin there. Um, I'll start one out, take moderator's privilege and, and start uh, with a question, what what effect do you think this will have going forward on disabilities law? Uh, more generally, what effect will this case have? Will it be looked uh, back at in future disability cases that make it to the Supreme Court? Um, what effect do you think it will have? Um, well, I you know I mean this case looked back twenty years um, to the case involving punitive damages, so I suspect that you know this case will be cited. Um, for other types of special damages under disability law. And I think it will have repercussions, um, you know, outside of disability law. Um, my, I don't know for a fact, but my impression is that, um, you know, most of the lawsuits um, under, under uh, disability discrimination come under the parts of the ADA that are, that are more like Title VII, that are not spending clause provisions. Um, and those do have damages and emotional damages, and um, those will continue to be available. So, you know, I would guess that for the average disability plaintiff, um, this probably won't have an impact. But, um, you know, in areas like Title IX, where there's a lot of, um, there's not that much litigation under Title VI, but Title IX, um, there's a lot of litigation. And, um, you know, both uh, you know, both private causes of action and also investigations by the Office of Civil Rights. And for those private causes of action, this may um, ultimately lead to a ruling that uh, emotional damages are are not available. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it depends what the uh, configuration of the court is when uh, when the issue comes before it. Certainly very interesting. A question, question you may or may not know the answer to at the state level, is it common that states will allow plaintiffs to to claim emotional damages um, in cases like this on the basis of disability? Um, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, the the uh, majority opinion you know, makes it quite clear that when we're talking about damages for breach of contract, um, certainly the majority, if not universal rule, is that emotional damages are not generally available. Um, and then again, there's a debate about whether the exception where 
you know, one could have assumed emotional damages uh, as a majority rule or, you know, just a spotty rule, let's say. Um, but I don't know the answer as to what state statutes um, on disability discrimination allow. Do you foresee that in the, oh, just sorry, you're about to say something else. Yeah, I was just going to say, Again, um, remember that this is, I know certainly in some states, I don't have statistics, but in some states, there's not an implied cause of action. Um, mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, there's an explicit cause of actions for recipients of state funds. Um, and so we don't even really get into this problem about courts largely inventing, you know, what the remedy should be. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee that some of the some of these states, particularly blue states, since this broke down along uh, the ideological lines, pursuing legislation now that this case has come out to allow people to pursue remedies um, on the basis of discrimination? Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that um, there will be pressure. Um, I mean, sort of. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is. Uh, is we're waiting for a decision in Dobbs, but I think everyone agrees that uh, if it comes out the way Alito's draft opinion came out, that states will be, uh, blue states will be jumping all over each other to make uh, abortion more available and funded. Um, you know, you're not gonna see as emotional reaction here, but um, I do think that you're gonna see activists turn to, uh, turn to the state level um, because, you know, again, and you know, a reasonable number of these disability cases, there is no um, pecuniary harm. It really is um, uh, all about uh, dignitary harm. And um, I didn't get into it, but, you know, Breyer's dissent goes into, you know, the fact that that's one of the major purposes of civil rights law is, you know, uh, dignitary harm. But, um, but yes, given that as a practical matter that that's often the only damages available, I do think you'll see uh, activism on the state level. Yeah, we do have a question from an attendee. Uh, they ask, why should contract law be the appropriate analogy when, for example, under sexual assault cases under Title IX, the hypothetical contract is a contract to prevent deliberate indifference towards sexual assault, which is not an enforceable contract in real life and involves an obvious emotional harm. Um, fair enough. Again, as I've said several times, um, you know, this is this is all made up and I never really found the um, sort of Pennhurst reasoning and the contract analogy to be to be very persuasive, to be honest with you. Um, and, um, you know, if you look to, um, you know, for example, um, you know, one of the reasons that um, um, punitive damages uh, are, you know, were ruled not to be available. Um, and I'm losing my uh, my chain of thought here was that um, those really go to tort, that when we see punitive damages in um, in contract disputes, it's because there really was some kind of tort. So um, to say that this is all about contracts, again, I really do think it's a fiction. Do I really think that um, you know, when they accept federal funds, they uh, they give a lot of thought to, uh, well, you know, if it's going to include emotional damages, then um, I, we're just not going to take that Medicare or Medicaid funding. I, no, I don't. I don't really believe that. Well, uh, unless anyone else has a question, I'll give them about a minute or so and ask uh, 
and ask them to put more questions in the Q&A section. But Kurt, do you have any final final thoughts on the case uh, while we're waiting for somebody to potentially ask one? Yeah, um, I mean, if you look um, sort of past the uh, hyperbole in the statements I read from uh, an attorney on the left and an attorney on the right, you know, I think there's there's some um, truth to that, that conservatives on the court um, you know, don't want to see the constant expansions of, of causes, causes of action um, and remedies, especially when they're completely judge created. Um, and I guess if you're, um, you know, a civil rights attorney who, you know, thinks every person who claims discrimination should be richly awarded, um, this is a setback. And Again, for conservatives, um, I mean, there is a concern that civil rights laws are sometimes used, um, let's say, in a um, you know aggressive way. Uh, maybe not as aggressively as they're used in the um, gay rights, religious liberty context that the uh, commenter was was focusing on, but um, you know, used um, you know um, used in a sort of punitive um, and aggressive way, and you know, I think it's fair to say that conservatives are happy to see that reined in. Well, thank you so very much, Kurt, for the benefit of your time and expertise today. Uh, we would like to thank our audience for for attending and giving and giving that question as well. Um, we welcome all listener feedback at uh, by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you for all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.